Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at This is the Wicked South Podcast, exploring the dark history of the Murdoch legal dynasty and fascinating criminal cases on both sides of the law. Randolph Murdoch Sr. was a tough historical figure who practiced law in a very tough time period. It was the middle of the Great Depression and the First Great World War. Murdoch Sr., who founded the family law firm and built the very foundations of the Murdoch legal and political dynasty, was also a fierce and fearless prosecutor, pursuing criminal charges against dangerous criminals and powerful people alike. Murdoch went toe-to-toe with and prosecuted corrupt government officials, crooked bankers, sheriffs, and other rogue lawmen, and even a former South Carolina governor. But one of his most sensational and scandalous criminal cases involved a hot-blooded holiness preacher charged with the statutory rape and impregnation of a teenage girl in his congregation in 1927. This is Randolph Murdoch and the case of the pedophile preacher. Hello, friend. That, of course, the voice of Michael DeWitt, whose book, The Fall of the House of Murdoch, will be coming out soon. I am Matt Harris, and of course, Seton Tucker is here. And we did get some feedback that maybe Michael's sound quality was not the best, but his phone has been cleaned, and it sounds way better. And and Michael, was it your wife that came to the rescue? As always, there's always a, a good woman behind every halfway decent man, and apparently you can't take your phone fishing and hunting and mud bogging and all that and expect it to work properly, so... Uh, I think we're better now. We we are, although you had hoped that cleaning wouldn't work so you get a new phone, but you'll have to deal. It sounds good. When when will the book be coming out? Do we have a date for that? We are shooting for early November uh, okay. in the fall and uh, actually hoping to wrap it up by late, get it out by late October because I've already got some wonderful uh, events scheduled for early November and I don't want to, uh, any readers to miss out. We're, we're just saying the fall, but we're shooting for late October. Okay, so, wow, this pedophile preacher, what a story. Tell us more about who this guy was. Well, this naughty preacher, uh, toward the end of the story, when he began calling himself Reverend, he was Reverend Lloyd M. Bishop over in Colleton County, uh, in the rural part of Colleton County, where, um, you know, the Alex Murdoch murder trial was held in Walterboro, which is the county seat. And this little detail should tell you a little bit about uh Reverend Bishop and his church, according to the court documents that we found online uh, after our research efforts here, Bishop uh, could not get along with other members of his faith, which was described as Pentecostal holiness. Um, I'm not exactly familiar with that. I'm old Southern Baptist, but he was a Pentecostal holiness, but he couldn't get along with the, the rest of the people in his church. So he and a co-worker just decided to start their own branch of that denomination, start their own church. 
So they got together one day. They baptized each other, which I've never heard of. I guess they went down to a local creek and baptized each other and <laughs> um, founded a new church right there in rural Colleton County to teach and preach what they described as the true holiness doctrine. I've been baptized a time or two when I went fishing and the boat turned over, but I still <laughs> emerged a, a Baptist. But anyway, the interesting thing about that, when the Greenville News reported on this story back in 1927, they put the word holiness in quotes. So I don't know if they took him seriously or not, uh, but that that's who we're talking about, the Reverend Lloyd M. Bishop. Well, I think they said like 13 people were baptized when they started this new congregation. Yeah, I think in the very beginning it was uh, it was uh, him and, and another guy, and then I think they added some more followers. They didn't even have a church building; they just got together and baptized each other and and started their own church. Uh, in theory, before uh, they actually had a brick and mortar building. Well, you got to start somewhere. Well, and sometimes, I mean, I've seen it myself. Congregations sometimes have falling outs and go different directions. But the direction they went in was. Not a very good one. So the new church was founded. You said, what, we had 13. I think we decided members of the congregation needed a place to worship. One of the congregation members who lived near Cottageville was a carpenter and volunteered to erect a chapel for the guy we've talked about, Reverend Bishop, near the carpenter's home. Here comes the problem. The carpenter I should say there comes a problem for this guy, but for most people, it wouldn't have been a problem. The carpenter <laughs> had a teenage daughter, and this becomes a problem for old Reverend Bishop because there's a little temptation happening there. Michael, you talked about it's like something you would read about in the Bible, right? Yeah. Was it uh, King David or, that I'm thinking about? Wasn't he tempted by... One of his, uh, one of his uh, general's wife, or one of his soldiers' wives. Yeah, it seems like maybe the king in the Bible had, you know, hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, but yet there was a, a woman that just tempted him to sin. And I'm sure the Bible uh, tells us a lot about temptation and sin. Um, so you think the the Reverend would kind of be on guard for that, but um, apparently not. Looking at some of these newspaper reports, they say that there was a great intimacy that sprang up between these two families. And according to later testimony, Bishop said he won the confidence of the girl who was at this time between the ages of 13 and 14. And in fact, he appointed her as one of his special assistants and even licensed her to preach. Which I'm not sure, first of all, that a 13-year-old should be a temptation. That's weird out of the gate. Secondly, a licensor to preach. I wonder what that means in those days. Is it just him saying, hey, you can preach? Or is there something that she had to learn? I don't know. I mean, I've always gone to more liturgical churches that there's some sort of licensure. You know, you have yeah. to go through some sort of training, but it doesn't maybe seem like that's what happened in this situation. I think the reason in the newspaper articles they say between the ages of 13 and 14 is because the way the law was written, it was very specific about age. It wasn't just like now we have, say, a minor or uh, whatever the case may be. And uh, the, the, the part of her being between 13 and 14 was a specific age that was needed to charge him with a, a certain crime. Well, and also these families developed this intimacy. Let's talk about that. You've got to remember now, and obviously there's nothing, you know, we may find some, some humor along the way in this story toward the end, but there's nothing uh, funny or lighthearted about 
um, you know, statutory rape or any type of, of sexual crime like that. Oh, no. But you have to remember, this is a, a very different time. Back in those days, you probably had, you know, younger uh, child brides probably weren't uncommon. And even as little details like uh, being licensed to preach. If you remember, a judge in the 14th Circuit never went to law school. He uh, studied the law under Buster Murdoch. So you didn't always have to have an official school certificate to become a preacher, for example. But I think one thing that was clear from this was the legal age at the time was 16. So anything below 16, uh, obviously, is a crime. And I also think you'll see as we move along in this story that this guy had a, had a tendency to kind of take uh, young women under his wing. There's church and there's religion and then there's uh, manipulation. You, you, you kind of think of cults that maybe um, brainwash or, or manipulate people. And I think you're going to see a little, little, a little touch of that, I think, in this guy's behavior. Well, there's a very famous church who's had some problems with similar things, but I will skip that. Yes. Also, it, it is disturbing to have this young person. But I, I mean, I actually have family members who drove over the line from South Carolina to North Carolina because the age to elope and get married was younger in North Carolina than it was in South Carolina. So to get married like as a teenager, yeah. 15 or 16 You could get or married as a teenager. Hmm. Well, things start to build. Now we've got indictments as he is found out that old Reverend Bishop was uh, the dog that he is. What happened? Well, according to the indictments that emerged later and the testimony at the trial, an illicit relationship, in quotes, developed between the preacher and the young teen. We don't know if it was during, you know, those late night prayer sessions. We don't know if it was, you know, after church, after dinner on the grounds, uh, down by the baptism creek. We don't know any details. We just know an illicit relationship developed. Now, this is kind of my favorite part. I have a dark sense of humor, so I guess I, <laughs> I'm a little skeptical of this part here. The crime was obviously premeditated, and it must have troubled the preacher's soul a little bit before he did it, because he sat down and prayed to God about it. And the girl later testified that Bishop told her he fasted and prayed before embarking on the affair, and that God had sanctioned the union. And I find that kind of uh, interesting. God has, has talked to me a time or two, but he's never sanctioned anything like that. He's always told me to um, straighten up and get back in church. He never told me anything like that. Well, let's be clear. This uh, idea that it troubled his soul is probably not the case. It was more like, how do I talk this young girl into it? Well, I'm a man of God, so I'll say God told me it's okay. I, I don't know if there was any uh, guilt on his mind other than, what do I say so I can be the pedophile that I am? And There you go. Yeah. And so did he really fast and pray, or did he like skip breakfast? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it was just whatever it took. To get yeah. the third. Well, if you're trying to manipulate a young yes. uh, member of your flock, your congregation, you know, you bring God in on your side. God said it's okay, you sure. know, uh, it's going to be all right. And uh, but apparently it wasn't. I mean, uh, sin has a way of telling on you, especially sins of the flesh. And lo and behold, a child was born. But this was no immaculate conception in a manger. I can tell you. Yes, you know, you're right. The idea of using God. To get away with various sins is as old as the as God Himself, as old as the Bible. It's been used before, and it'll be used again. But this guy was a, a mess. It's obvious. And what then happens? They go to court. He's indicted. And what are the actual charges? 
uh, Seaton. Statutory criminal sexual assault. And the judge, Ivy Smoke, was a probate judge, was appointed counsel for the accused preacher. I found that really interesting that this probate judge was appointed counsel. I mean, he did seem like probably somebody who had a criminal background. He's a probate judge. Do you think that he had a background in defense, uh, Michael, or we don't know anything about this? Or maybe this is just a different time. One article did say that he did not have an attorney, and so they appointed, I guess, this was the the closest thing they could get to a public defender for him. Um, Maybe that was common practice back then. I don't know. But uh, he was basically sat in as a a pre-court-appointed public defender for him. And who represented the state? That would have been Randolph Murdoch Sr. and Herbert R. Paget. Those two were once rivals. Uh, Paget once ran against Murdoch. I think in that very first election in 1920, and uh, Murdoch easily beat him uh, and became the 14th Circuit solicitor. Well, Murdoch and Paget uh, prosecuted the case, represented the state. Ivy A. Smoke, which Smoke is a Colleton County name, Walter Bird name. There are a lot of smokes over there. There's even a, a town called Smokes uh, in rural Colleton County. He was a probate judge, but they made him the uh, public defender. And the trial was set for June 15th, uh, 1927, before Judge J. Henry Johnson in the Colleton County Courthouse. And it would prove to be one of Solicitor Murdoch's most scandalous cases ever. Before we move on to the rest of this, I just wanted to talk about when we were doing our research for this story, we're reading an article about this. And right next to it was an article talking about this exchange club electing new officers. And in this article, it talks about Murdoch and Judge Johnson were all in attendance. So it's it, it's a small community. They're all, there's two articles right next to each other and they're all listed. And these, so Exchange Club, maybe something like a Lions or a Kiwanis or something like that? I don't really know. Like, Michael, do you know? Uh, I'm not very familiar with the Exchange Club. It might be uh, maybe a, a predecessor to the Rotary Club. Something like that, but yeah. You see that a lot. You see, you know, the Murdochs were in every um, social and political circle. So um, you know, they, they probably, you know, they, they drank whiskey and went fishing with the judges and other lawyers and just local sheriffs. So that was interesting, but it's not at all uncommon in the 14th circuit where you've got these small counties, um, in every little county, everybody knows each other. Sure. Well, back to the trial, it's described as one of his, the most scandalous cases ever in front of Solicitor Murdoch. And the newspapers actually use the, uh, Here's the quotes. One of the most interesting and sensational ever held in Colleton County. The newspapers reported that the public held intense interest in this case from start to finish. The entire courthouse was occupied. This is the quote, not me saying this, by the way. The entire courthouse was occupied by white spectators. The Negroes having been excluded from attendance by Judge J. Henry Johnson, noted the uh, report from the Watchmen and uh, Sothron, adding standing room was at a premium. So, I mean, obviously 1927, but let the white people in, not the black people in. And here's something I'm wondering. The preacher, is he white or black? Well, I was going to touch on that. I, you know, I'm not a, uh, I try not to bring race into a, a story or a topic unless it's relevant to the story, you know. But when I saw this quote, it had me wondering. I look back at every article and I found uh, no reference to race, to whether they were white or black. Um, and I don't know why the judge would have uh, left black people out of the courtroom. And 
my experience with the guardian, if there was a, if the participants, if the principals in the story were were African American, they would have said so in the story. Those old papers were kind of racist in nature. Oh, they yeah. were very quick to point out that if someone was a white citizen or a black citizen. Um, so I'm a bit puzzled by this, and uh, I can I can only guess as to what the situation was, but it's not stated in any of the reports that I saw. So that means we don't know Reverend Bishop, his race, and we don't know the girl's race. And I don't know enough about the Pentecostal or Holiness uh, Church to make an educated assumption. Until we can find more information, it's just going to be hanging out there. Right. Um, and, it, and it's not really relevant to the story at all, other than this this fact that the judge kicked, kicked all the black folks out, and uh, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it was really weird to me. I mean, it was they said in some of the articles that it was standing room only. It was packed. Um, but yeah, that was really disturbing to me, honestly, that that only the white people were allowed in. And then when we get to the sentencing, race comes back into play again. We'll go down that path here in a second. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. So, the trial begins, and Michael, there is a little twist. You know, everybody, uh, everybody loves a good courtroom drama. Um, you know, we we saw it back in the old days when Perry Mason was a popular TV show. We we see it nowadays in um, court TV. Uh, you know, that covered the Murdoch trial. It's, just, it's courtroom drama is, is something people love. Bishop's defense attorney quickly came out of the gate with a few surprise plot twists. He had claims that the girl was, in fact, legal when the sins of the flesh occurred. Basically, they were saying she was 16 when she got pregnant, not 13, followed by allegations that another man was actually the guilty party, that the, the preacher is not the father, that another guy's the father. Huh. And the defense noted that the girl, who was, and this is a new word on me, I like this word, um, I might try to use it again in a, in a story, she was described as the prosecutrix, which mm. I guess is the female version of a prosecutor, I guess. The prosecutrix, in, uh, was how she was described in the newspaper, the one newspaper article, was older than 16, the legal, legal age of consent when she became pregnant, and that the real father was a relative of the girl, um, not the preacher, but it was more convenient to blame the preacher than blame the victim's own family member. 
Um, wow. So that kind of, you know, a good legal defense is throw stones at somebody else. And but it was an ineffective strategy because lo and behold, the young lady brought the ultimate piece of evidence with her to the courthouse, her bouncing baby boy. I did the math and the child had to be somewhere around a year old at the time. So he's probably crawling age. And in fact, according to the uh, the Sumter paper, the Watchman and and uh, South Ron, I believe it's called. The boy was described as the innocent cause of the legal battle, and he played on the courtroom floor while testimony raged for two days. Wow! Now, can you imagine being a criminal defendant and you're charged with, um, you know, impregnating a young girl, and you're claiming you don't do it, but the evidence is just crawling around the courtroom and. Lord, what if the baby looked like the defendant? What if the baby looked like the preacher? That would not help his case at all. Well, and they said that the mother, as well as her father, helped care for the child during the trial. See, that would not be allowed, obviously, in this day and age. And we go back to not knowing the race. That could The baby could be very clearly from the family or the preacher, depending on the situation with that. But also, to make matters worse for the preacher, the preacher's wife, who is described as the preacher's assistant, which is ironic because that's what the 13-year-old title was as well, the wife sat by his side and engaged in frequent heated conferences with her husband as details came to light. So... Stand by your man, I guess. Well, but yeah, but she's yelling. <laughs> it sounds like by the, by the description, she's yelling at him, right? There's that. That's, that's what I take from it. She's still sitting next to him. Well, I wouldn't be. Uh, if I was on trial for a sex act, the last person I would want sitting beside me would be my wife. I can tell you that now. But <laughs> so imagine he's been telling his wife, oh, this detail, this never happened and that never happened. And then the whole time, all these details, new details are coming to light with every witness, every piece of testimony. And his wife is, I can imagine, I, I can imagine the guy sitting there. You know, I like to get in the mind of these characters. I can imagine the guy sitting there and he's trying to play innocent and look respectable and, and holy and devout. And I can imagine his wife's uh, eyeball just boring a hole in the side of his head. Every time a witness comes forward and said he did this and he said that, I imagine that woman just glaring at him and kicking him under the table and saying, wait till we get home. The jury had to be influenced by that. If you're looking over and uh, the defendant is getting beaten by the wife's purse as he's sitting there, then you're going like, hey, kind of look guilty to me. You know, his wife was taking a hard look at that baby. You know, his wife was looking oh, yeah. at that baby and looking at him and trying to to find out on her own, All right, is this is this his baby or not? Yep. Oh, no question. So uh, <laughs> the court begins on a Monday in Seton, uh, how long does it take? After two days, they found Reverend Lloyd M. Bishop, formerly of the Pentecostal Holy Faith, guilty of statutory criminal assault. Uh, the pastor's attorney immediately filed a motion for a new trial, but his convicted client was sent straight away to the Colleton County Jail in Wellsboro to await sentencing. And Judge Johnston sentenced him. And what was the sentence, Michael? Uh, it looks like it was a term uh, between two and a half to five years. Um, so I guess depending on good behavior or whatever, he'd be out in, in two and a half or sooner. And the motion for a new trial was was uh, quickly denied. And I read uh, 
the article, I don't know if you saw the article where Judge Johnston sentenced a few people together at one point, and the white men were getting 12 months with six months suspended, and the black people who were convicted, the black guys, were getting 12 months with eight months suspended. And he said, Judge Johnson said, that white men should have known better, and that's why they got a longer sentence. Just a weird, weird time. And uh, some were sentenced to a, a chain gang, which is weird to see in, in print. You know, you know about it. You know, there were chain gangs and things like that. One thing about doing this historical research and going back and reading the newspapers of the, of the era, you see it's, a, it's an institutional attitude of racism. You see it in the, in the way the newspaper articles are written. I've seen the word uh, Negro color just and a lot worse. So from the basic journalism of the day to the basic uh, the legal institutions, um, you know, the, the judge said white people should have known better. I remember seeing an article in The Guardian. I don't I didn't make note of the year, but this uh, white man happened to be they, the big headline was he was the first white man in Hanson County to be convicted of killing a black person. Jeez. Um, now, you know, he wasn't the first person oh, to actually uh, of course not. commit that crime. But he was the first one to actually be convicted, and that was newsworthy because things like that just didn't happen. Even if you're researching and, and trying to retell a story that isn't about race at all, uh, you see this racist fibers underneath every uh, area you touch in back in those days. Yeah, I saw an article that was either on this one or one of the older old newspapers that it talked about this Klan uh, meeting as if it was like, People getting together to uh, you know study butterflies or something, or it was a Kiwanis club. It was just oh, the clans getting together. Blah 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 blah. And I'm like, wow, wow, scary times. Uh, Seton, what happened to uh, Reverend Bishop? Well, it didn't appear to be the end of Bishop's career as a religious leader. He apparently resumed preaching after serving his prison sentence. And according to the Walterboro paper, in April of 1930. He held services at 8 p.m. at the Holiness Church every Wednesday night to Sunday, where he offered prison lectures on sin and crime. Prison lectures? On, what, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that means, prison lecture. I don't know either. I, I was very curious about that. And so I don't know if the preacher actually you know, went into the local prison and talked to the inmates, but it, oh, okay. the advertisement I saw looked like it was an advertisement for church services at the Holiness Church in, in that location. So based on this guy's uh, character as far as his, his ability to manipulate people and take advantage of the situation, maybe he used that prison sentence to further his career as a pastor. Now he's got something else to preach about. He, You know, I'm not a bad person. I actually learned something while I'm in prison. So oh, uh, come on down and hear me preach and give some pr prison lectures and put some money in the offering plate while you're here. I, that's all sure. wild speculation, but yeah. um, he certainly uh, came an authority on sin and crime, and he was certainly sharing it uh, from the pulpit. And he wasn't in very long because the, the trial was in uh, June of 27, and he is out in April of 1930 running church services again. So he did not yes. do much time for— Singing, his, singing a redemption song. But geez, come on, man. It, that's like two years or something for— impregnating the 13-year-old girl, that's just... I don't think that would happen these days. I would, I would hope not, but just, you never know. One of the things that was interesting was an article that was adjacent to this one. Yeah, we have to talk about this article. Yeah. The leg. The leg. 
Uh, this woman prayed that her leg would start functioning again. It was not working. And this is a news story, by the way. This is newspaper. And it is Thursday, June 16th, 1927. Headline, infirm leg of woman cured at Ritchie meeting report. Mrs. J.E. Phillips finds limb useless for years, is healed. Shouts of joy and praise to God were heard last night at Textile Hall, shortly before the close of the service conducted by A.J. Ritchie and party, when Mrs. J.E. Phillips, a resident of this county, visiting at Duncan, found that she could move her left leg for the first time since she was 18 months of age. And then it goes on to tell the whole story and uh, how she went up in front of the congregation and uh, the guy said, man's extremities are usually God's opportunities. She and was not part of Bishop's uh, congregation. She came to visit, and how about that? So you have the pedophile preacher, and then I guess maybe they felt they needed to balance it, so they throw the leg being healed by the preacher story in there, too. Michael, you had a, a joke that'll tie in from uh, Lewis Grizzard. What is it? Well, in literature and in... Uh our culture, you know, um, there are a lot of jokes and expressions about preachers and it's always kind of ironic or, or, uh, maybe even, uh, darkly funny when a, a preacher grow, goes astray. You know, we, um, we expect people who claim to be religious leaders to hold themselves, um, to a certain standard. And I guess the, there's something inside all of us that maybe, um, gets a, a good kind of karmic chuckle when we see a, Preacher gone bad or whatever. Uh, Louis Grizzard, this was, I can't remember which book it comes from, but in one of his books, he shares this joke. And I, I think it's a good way to conclude this episode. Um, and I'm sure I won't do it justice like Louis Grizzard uh, did. But in the book, he claims that it was his favorite joke in the entire world. And his wife absolutely hated it. So he made a point of telling it at every dinner party. But there's this preacher. And he uh, he meets up with the deacon at church one day, and the preacher's all upset, very distraught. And the deacon says, what's wrong, brother? He says, well, somebody stole my bicycle. I know it has to be somebody in this congregation because I've just been out visiting everybody in the in the flock. And I know somebody in this <laughs> congregation stole my bicycle. And I, I'm very upset about it. And the deacon had this great idea. He said, this is what you do on Sunday. Get it up the pulpit. And I want you to preach on the Ten Commandments. And when you get to the one about thou shalt not steal, I want you to lay down hard and heavy. And I want you to look people in the eye. And I want you to bring fire and brimstone. And whoever stole your bicycle will feel bad. They'll feel remorse. And they will bring it back. So the preacher took his advice. The, uh, the deacon couldn't make it to church that Sunday. He was out sick. So the following Sunday, he meets up with the preacher. And he says, well, how did your lecture go? Uh, how did the Ten Commandments go over? Preacher said, you know, you gave me some good advice and it and it worked, but not quite the way you you said. Uh, I started preaching on those Ten Commandments and I was uh, going at it. And when I got to the one about adultery, I remember where I left my bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> that's, oh, that's great. Hilarious. That is great. Well, I wanted to read a review we got on yeah. Apple Podcasts, which says, as an SC native, I love hearing these stories. It's part of our history, and they are told in a respectful way. Keep them coming. Very nice. Uh, Michael, once again, the uh, book they're looking for is The Fall of the House of Murdoch. 
coming in eh, October or November. And uh, also Michael's socials. You can find them on Twitter and, and, and such. But this podcast can be found on Facebook, the Wicked South Podcast. Woo! Seen's nodding at me like, yeah, dummy, you got it right, because I keep screwing it up. Uh, anything else to leave with before we uh, rock and roll? Oh, no, we want to talk about uh, if you log into our social media, you subscribe to our Facebook page, The Wicked South, and we're going to leave a link there. And if you like it and you comment The Wicked South, Michael is graciously offering one of his books. Nice. And you'll autograph and send it to him, Michael? That's right. We've got to get the details worked out, but we're going to announce it on our Wicked South Facebook page. And the lucky winner, I will sign the book. Uh, I'll personalize it uh, any any way you want if you have a preference there and uh, mail it to you at my expense. Just happy to get people engaged in our Facebook page. And the book will be uh, Wicked Hampton County, which is kind of the the predecessor to follow the House of Murdoch. Mm-hmm. And um, when fall comes out in the fall, we're going to give away some copies of that as well. And uh, we're getting this thing cranked up. We don't really ever ask for this, but there is a, a way for you to make donations to uh, the podcast. So our producer, Dwayne, maybe he can get us a soda or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're always grateful, super grateful. Reach out to the Wicked South podcast, Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com. We'll talk soon, friend.